Hi everyone, this is Nicholas Olick and Hannah Lindell, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents with the Resident Review. Uh, today we're continuing our quick hit series designed to aid in our in-service preparation, and we're gonna be discussing cleft lip and palate, a very exciting topic. Uh, Hannah, do you wanna get started with some anatomy for us? Will do. Everyone stick with us on this one. It's a long one, but uh, some important information. So we'll start with the anatomy of the palate. So the levator villi palatini passes posterior to the hamulus and creates a muscular sling. It originates from the medial aspect of the eustachian tube and runs transversely in the middle 50% of the velum. It runs through the palate to elevate the palate, and it is innervated by the pharyngeal plexus. The palatoglossus runs through the anterior tonsillar pillar to depress the palate. The tensor villi palatini is innervated by the medial pterygoid nerve from the trigeminal nerve. It descends from the base of the skull adjacent to the eustachian tube, courses around the hamulus, forms a broad aponeurosis with contralateral muscle within the anterior soft palate. It contributes to eustachian tube pressure modulation. The palatopharyngeus is responsible for controlling velopharyngeal sphincter by controlling the size, shape, and position. The superior pharyngeal constrictor works uh, to control pharyngeal closure during swallowing and speech. That was quite a mouthful. So in terms of the incidence of cleft lip and palate, you can review all of these numbers on our website, but just briefly, uh, one affected sibling with isolated cleft lip, the, is a 2.5% risk of having a second sibling with cleft lip. And then if there is one affected sibling with a unilateral cleft lip and palate, there's a 4.2% chance of having a second child with cleft lip and palate. And then we'll move on to congenital anomalies uh, involving cleft lip and palate. So probably the most commonly tested is Vanderwood syndrome, and this is a common syndrome associated with cleft lip with or without cleft palate. It is autosomal dominant, so there's a 50% risk in any offspring, and this can present as lip pits or bilateral complete cleft lip and palate. And importantly, it's due to IRF6. Second is 22Q or velocardiofacial syndrome. And this presents as overt or submucous clefting of the palate, as well as hypotonia and can have cardiac abnormalities and hypocalcemia. You should have a high suspicion in children with cardiac abnormalities and cleft palate abnormalities. Children will have distinct facial appearance. They have an elongated face with a wide nose, small ears, and lower facial muscle tone. And this is detected by FISH via deletion of 22Q11.2. This has a higher incidence overall of VPI or velopharyngeal insufficiency due to decreased oropharyngeal tone and learning differences. And then Pierre Robin presents as a triad of glossoptosis, retrogenia, and respiratory distress. And patients often have a high arched or a U-shaped cleft, which is uh, very pathognomonic for Pierre Robin. The initial management includes placing the neonate in a prone position to relieve respiratory distress. And then finally, Wardenberg syndrome is associated with a white forelock and sensory, sensory neural hearing loss. And then we'll go through some of the timing of the treatment of cleft lip and palate. So the first procedure you would consider is nasoalveolar molding that's applied shortly after birth. 
Next would be cleft lip repair, normally at age three to six months, followed by cleft palate repair, normally around nine to 12 months. You would consider alveolar bone grafting between seven and 12 years, and then a Lafort or rhinoplasty should be performed in late adolescence after skeletal maturity. So for nasoalveolar molding, the goal is to reposition and approximate the alveolar segments and reshape the nasal cartilages. This corrects columellar height. And then next, the next procedure would be a cleft lip repair. And we'll briefly go through some of the embryology. So developmentally, this forms at five to six weeks of gestation. Unilateral cleft lip results from failed fusion of the medial nasal prominence and the maxillary prominence. The lateral nasal processes form the nasal ala. The medial nasal prominence forms the nasal tip, the columella, the philtrum, and the premaxilla. And the frontonasal process forms the forehead, the bridge of the nose, and the root of the nose. Oblique facial clefts result from failure of fusion of the lateral nasal prominence and the maxillary prominence. Lateral oral commissure cleft is a result of failed fusion of the mandibular and the maxillary prominences. A median cleft lip results from failed fusion of the medial nasal prominences. I don't know about you, Nick, but that's something I always have to review right before the test. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately, something that shows up pretty frequently. Um, they like to ask where these different clefts derive from. Yes. Uh, so we'll briefly review cleft lip repair techniques. So one technique is a rotation advancement. And it's important to note this can result in a short upper lip. So the non-cleft side is rotated and the cleft side is advanced. So the C-flap or the columellar flap is made from the non-cleft side to rotate into the columella and lengthen it. The D flap is the alar base flap. The M flap is the medially is the medially based flap for rotation. The L flap is from the surface of the lateral lip element used to line the lateral nasal vault between the internal mucosa and the hair bearing skin. And in patients with bilateral cleft lip, the repair may result in a wide filtrum. And always, you can perform scar correction, uh, you know, at 12 months of age or later. Nick, do you want to? Take it from here and talk about some of the nasal deformities of cleft lip. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're also commonly tested on this nasal deformity uh, in cleft lip patients, and there's a characteristic deformity. This includes the uh, inferior border of the bony septum being deviated to the cleft side. The anterior nasal spine is deviated to the non-cleft side. You'll have decreased sagittal projection of the piriform sinus and the dento-alveolar arch. Uh, the ala is going to be lateral, inferior, and posterior. The premaxilla is rotated and projected outward, and the lateral maxillary element is collapsed and retropositioned. You also have a short uh, columella. In terms of lip deformities, the filtrum termination of the orbicularis oris muscle in the lateral lip is shortened at the margin of the cleft, and the muscle inserts on the alar wing. Uh, following cleft lip repair, if you still have a tight upper lip, one option is the Abbe flap or the lip switch flap, and this used to create a functional filtrum in patients who have uh, that tightness after cleft lip repair. This is pedicled on the submucosal labial artery of the lower lip. The pedicle can then be divided on at two to four weeks and the, uh, to restore a normal filtrum distance of 10 to 15 millimeters in width. It sounds like a pretty cool procedure. I would, I'd like to see one. Yeah, I've never seen one. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the cleft palate now. So this is produced by failure of fusion of the medial and lateral palatine processes. And this occurs in week seven to eight of gestation. When we think about cleft palate, we often think about the vogue classification. 
Uh, VO1 is incomplete cleft of the soft palate. VO2 is the cleft involving the soft and hard palate. VO3 is complete unilateral cleft lip and palate. And VO4 is bilateral cleft lip and palate. Isolated cleft palate alone carries a 50% risk of other congenital abnormalities. So it's important to do a thorough physical exam when you see a patient with cleft palate. Uh, in cleft palate, the levator belly palatini is clefted and courses sagittally in an anterior posterior direction and is attached abnormally to the posterior edge of the hard palate. And this is what is repaired in a cleft palate repair. 90% of those with cleft palate have chronic infection and effusion of the middle ear, which can result in hearing loss. And this percentage, 90%, is something that the, uh, the question writers like to test on our in-service. Um, remember that repair of the levator during cleft palate repair can help improve this eustachian tube function. Some of the techniques we think about for cleft palate repair are the VO technique, the Wardrill, Kilner, furlough palatoplasty, and the Bardak palatoplasty. And the goal in all of these is to reestablish normal anatomy, repair the uvula, the levator belly palatini, repair the nasal lining, and release abnormal attachments of the tensor belly palatini. We also talk about the submucous cleft palate, and this involves a bifid uvula, notching of the hard palate, Midline thinning of the posterior palate. Uh, you can, this can be identified with transillumination due to the absent levator muscle sling. And this may also present as a velopharyngeal insufficiency after tonsillectomy. That's another important test point. Uh, 10 to 15% of patients will demonstrate velopharyngeal insufficiency with the rest being asymptomatic with submucous clefts. It's important to evaluate speech in these patients for this reason. Uh, treatment includes restoration of normal anatomy of palatoplasty, typically a furlough palatoplasty, and the levator will still be clefted and should be repaired. Uh, in bilateral cleft lip and palate, you have asymmetric bilateral cleft lips should be repaired simultaneously for best outcomes. Moving on to talk a little bit about the uh, dental arch. Uh, there's a high prevalence of dental anomalies with cleft lip and palate. Again, another commonly tested point. The most common dental anomaly is agenesis, and this is found in 50% of patients. The most commonly affected tooth in agenesis is the permanent lateral incisor on the cleft side. Uh, the second most common anomaly is supernumerary teeth. And an unrepaired alveolar cleft will reveal a, post reveal a posterior crossbite of maxillary dentition due to collapse of the maxillary arch. And we can address this by alveolar bone grafting in order to stabilize this dental arch. This is performed to support tooth health and permanent canine before the canine has fully erupted. If you do this too early, um, it's bad for tooth growth. It should be performed in transitional dentition. The first step of this begins with palatal expansion and then grafting later on. Uh, this uh, alveolar bone grafting allows for bone support for subsequent placement of endosteum titanium implants, and bone stock required for an implant is 10 to 15 millimeters. The bones that we typically use uh, as we think about for sites of our bone graft are the iliac bone crest, uh, cancellous bone, rather than demineralized bone matrix. Uh, disadvantages include the donor site of the iliac crest and failure rates are equivalent between the two. The patients will frequently have absence of teeth in the alveolar cleft or teeth that may be abnormal and require removal. And then and Nick, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, insert here that uh, BMP2 or bormifrogenic protein 2 that you mentioned is associated with really severe edema, which is something that we've been asked before. All right, so moving on to talk a little bit more about uh, velopharyngeal insufficiency. And this is the inability to completely close the velopharyngeal sphincter and is diagnosed on nasoendoscopy. And the classic sign would include hypernasal speech. So a little bit about the anatomy of this region. The velopharyngeal port is bordered by the velum anteriorly, the lateral pharyngeal walls, and posterior pharyngeal wall. 
poor lateral wall motion um, or a coronal closure, pat closure pattern um, can result in this. And treatment for this includes sphincter pharyngeoplasty, which brings the lateral walls more centrally. Sphincter, pharyngeo sphincter pharyngeoplasty rotates the posterior tonsil pillars as superior base flaps to line the posterior pharynx and narrows the velopharyngeal sphincter. And this includes the harvest of the pallidopharyngeus muscle. Again, this muscle is survived, uh, supplied by the pharyngeal plexus through the vagus nerve. And this typically has less nasal obstruction than a pharyngeal flap. If you have poor central wall motion or sagittal closure pattern or a velopharyngeal gap of greater than five millimeters, treatment would then include a pharyngeal flap. This is harvested as a superior base flap, typically, and, and layers include the mucosa, superior constrictor muscle, and buccopharyngeal flap or pretracheal fascia. Uh, the anterior prevertebral fascia is left intact, and this surrounds the cervical column and musculature. And the layers of this flap um, have been asked on our uh, in-service previously. If you have a shortened palatal length with good palatal elevation, this can be treated by conversion to a furlough palatoplasty, particularly good for patients who have concurrent sleep apnea as pharyngeoplasty may worsen sleep apnea. This can be used with the associated submucous cleft palates or following conventional pushback palatoplasty. So the preoperative velopharyngeal gap, which is determined by preop nasoendoscopy, is the most important determinant of velar competence after a furlough palatoplasty. Moving on to hyponasal speech, this describes the sound production when not enough air gets through the velopharyngeal sphincter, and this results in a muffled nasal voice. And this may also result for pharyngeoplasty. And you should evaluate for speech abnormalities and obstructive sleep apnea in these patients. Sleep apnea can be caused from severe mid-phase and pharyngeoplasty, um, and this is confirmed by polysonogram. Initial treatment is with trial of CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure. A Lafort 1 may be used and may be performed in adolescence, but in children results in permanent injury to uninterrupted teeth. Tracheostomy will bypass this mid-base level of obstruction and, and can be used if all other options fail. And then just one mm -hmm. last fact we were tested on last year was that an accredited cleft team must have a surgeon, a speech and language pathologist, and an orthodontist. Well, awesome job, Nick. Thanks for taking us through that difficult material. Um, thanks to all for joining us. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.